Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Before we get started today, I want to ask you to become a member of Strong Towns. For us to become the organization you're asking us to be, an organization that actively leads this country in a new direction, we need you to go to our website at www.strongtowns.org and join us. Even if it's just at the $25 a year level, your support is going to help us continue to expand on what we have done and engage with people across the country to take action. Strongtowns.org. And thank you for doing what you can to build a strong town. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I have been wanting for quite a while to have a good friend of mine on, and we just haven't been able to work it out until now. And I'm, I'm really glad that I can have one of the guys that I most admire. Met him a few years ago. He is uh, one of the authors of the Smart Growth Manual. He has written books about open streets and tactical urbanism. He is the principal at Street Plans Collaborative. I want to welcome to the podcast, Mike Lydon. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Gosh, man, you and I met in person back in New Orleans years ago as part of a next CNU Next Gen event. Tell me about how you got involved with CNU and Next Gen and found yourself sitting there in New Orleans with me and a, a handful of other people. Sure, I'll try and give you the short version. <laughs> For me, you know, my introduction to the whole planning world in a professional sense was through reading Suburban Nation, probably like so many of potentially your readers and other people around the country. And I was doing that as research for a, a thesis project in, in college where I was looking at the impact of sprawl and casino development in my home state of Maine. And, you know, once reading that book, I was hooked. I mean, growing up in Maine, I really didn't had a lot of exposure to those issues. And I lived in a very small town. It had a walkable little core and then everything else was rural. And so the idea and notion of suburban sprawl was not one that I really was familiar with. And I thought it was a great tragedy and injustice the way that this was being foisted upon the American public as described in, in suburban nation. So, you know, along with Jane Jacobs' Death and Life of Great American Cities and Jim Kunfler's uh, first couple of books, Geography of Nowhere and Home from Nowhere, those three books in their entirety were unbelievably influential on me. And from that point forward, how could you not be a new urbanist? Right. And so once I graduated from school and eventually had found my way to Boston, I wound up linking up with actually the older sister of a good friend of mine in growing up in, in high school. And so Kara Wilbur had just started to organize a local CNU chapter in New England that was headquartered out of Boston. And you know, that was being driven by people like Kara and Russ Preston, who you know and many yeah, know, yeah. and now a senior board member. And that was really kind of my first foray into this thing that there was next gen. And so being exposed to not only a new chapter locally in, in Boston, but that there's being really driven by next gen folks, you know, this was back in 2004. And so it was the 2005 um, CNU in Pasadena where I went to that conference. And arrived a day early um, and went to, I think it was a, actually just the second ever next-gen conference that was aligned with the greater and larger senior conference. And so I met 
Jim Kuman and I met Faith and Ed Erfurt and Matt Lambert and Peyton Chung and a wide variety of other people that first day, that first evening. And then moving forward, I've just kind of been good friends increasingly, but also really good professional collaborators and colleagues moving forward. So that's my sort of short story and being involved. Yeah. And of course, you know, fast forward five years from there, and I'd gone through grad school and was, you know, working professionally and I'd basically just started street plans at that time. And we were in New Orleans together and that's that's when we met. Right, right. It's fascinating. Some of those names, <laughs> those are all like so influential people on me. At some point in that process, you wound up working at DPZ for the people who wrote Suburban Nation. That was, you know, one of those trips for me. How did that exactly happen? Sure. So again, it goes back to that being the first real book that I picked up on the subject matter and read seriously. And while I was doing that, I said, these are the people I need to work for. From that point forward, from my senior year in college and before, that was my goal. And then very fortunately, in 2005, 2006, I was in my first year of planning school at the University of Michigan. And that program encourages students to take on what they call an externship. And they reach out to either a, a municipality of your choice, a nonprofit or a planning firm, make the contacts and say, hey, we've got a student who wants to work with you, uh, with your firm or with your entity for a week over their spring break. Would you be willing to uh, host them? So my, my natural choice, you know, being in Michigan, this being February, saying, <laughs> yeah, Miami sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, uh, of course, at that, that point, you know, I was obviously very much enthralled with the work that DPZ had done and their approach in general to, to planning. And, and, you know, largely because they were intellectual leaders in, in the movement and they weren't, they had a real point to the work that they were doing, a real goal that was greater than the firm itself. And that was really important to me. So, you know, and that was clearly evidenced by the post-Katrina work there during the Gulf Coast. So, you know, they, they did accept uh, the Mich- you know, Michigan's offer to take me on for a week, I think, largely because they need all hands on deck to do a lot of the pro bono work that they were involved with in the Gulf after the, um, the hurricane. So, you know, I went down there for a week, and I was really thrilled to help out. But it, honestly, it was the last day that I was there, the second to last day that I was there, and Francisco Garcia, who was working for the firm, said, well, hey, I want, you're a planner, I'm a planner, most of the people here are architects, why don't we sit down, I want to tell you about a project we're just starting called Miami 21. Yeah. And that was a total, you know, a mind-blowing introduction to how, how the firm was working with the city of Miami in a very comprehensive, holistic way to change out the old use-based zoning code, which was not producing good results, and to change that out for form-based code. Again, at that time, the project was just starting, and I said, this is amazing. I want to come back and work on this project. And so the very next day, the last day there that week, I sat down with one of the firm's principals, Galena, and I said, is there any way I can come back you know, in May and work for the summer? I really enjoyed my week here. And I'm really, you know, suddenly passionate about this project that I just learned about and would love to be on that, that project team. And very, very fortunately, she said yes after a few weeks of deliberation. And so that was all set up. And then, you know, long story short, summer internship turned into me going down to Miami to work on my other vacations and then ultimately being offered a full-time job in 2007 once I left school. So that's how I got involved with the firm. And I was there through April of 2009, which is when I then spun off and started Street Plans. Now, you got to work on Miami 21. You also walked out of there having collaborated on the Smart Growth Manual. How did the Smart Growth Manual come about? 
Yeah, well, it's interesting. The, the project was always conceived as the follow-up to Suburban Nation. So when, you know, when Jeff was really writing Suburban Nation... Jeff, and Jeff Speck. With, yeah, Jeff Speck. Yeah. When Jeff used to, you know, he used to work at DPC, when he was there, they envisioned Suburban Nation as the book that identified the problem, and then the Smart Growth Manual being the, the follow-up on how to address those challenges. You know, as Andreas tells it, the planning, the building field, lots of things are starting to emerge, lead and sustainable design and a lot of new conversations. There's a lot of noise, but there wasn't really a lot of clarity on the direction it was going. So rather than jump in and immediately write a book that would be out of date within, you know, a month, he wanted to wait a few years and and see how some of those issues shook out. That's how he explained it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, from this is like two thousand one and he put the project on, on hold and they even had a contract with you know, the publisher, McGraw Hill, almost immediately following Suburban Nation for the publication of that book. And, you know, six years later I'm at the firm and at that point I was you know, blogging quite a bit, writing. I come from a more uh, interdisciplinary background, uh, a little arts education, et cetera, before I got into planning and design work. And most of the people at DPZ are excellent, excellent planners, but they come from the background of architecture and design. Right. And so I think Andreas honestly looked around the office and said, well, <laughs> who can uh, write? He, like, <laughs> he likes to write. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he can help us out. And, you know, I was a bit of an oddity at the firm. Sure. Um, because of my background, and I was really kind of a plug-and-play person. I'd help on certain projects. I'd help with business development. I'd help with, you know, media and writing and research. And so I was kind of, a, again, a plug-and-play kind of guy working on a variety of different initiatives. You know, writing a book myself right now, I can totally see why it'd be helpful to have somebody to be bird-dogging the daily issues that, that right. you know, needed to write a book. You know, yeah. collecting images, getting permission, you know, getting the right citation, putting up the book format, all that sort of stuff was what I was tasked with. Meanwhile, Jeff was doing a bulk of the writing and Andreas was serving as, as writer, but also as master editor for the whole project. Sure. Yeah. Right what an amazing time, piece play, of work. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, that's how the world works. What prompted you to take off? To me, one of the fascinating things about DPZ and one of really the enticing things about that organization is that they seem to be a place that just breeds new startups, you know, like they just ship people out all over who wind up essentially doing their own things and creating new stuff. So how did that transition happen where you said, you know, I'm, I'm going to move back up to the New England area and start my own deal? Well, at the time, you know, I was quite involved with Miami 21 and I was very involved with um, with bicycle advocacy in the city as well. And so I was a daily cyclist, you know, commuting from South Beach into Little Havana and was seeing the challenges, but also, more importantly, the opportunities for that city to become much more bike-friendly. And, you know, very fortunately, because of the Miami 21 work, we had an audience at the firm with the mayor's office. And the mayor's key and signature project for his second term was Miami 21, so his eyes and attention were on that. You know, Mayor Diaz was quite supportive of green initiatives, so to speak. And so I raised my voice at some point along with a few other advocates and said, Miami 21 is great, but it's not necessarily addressing things like bicycle planning and bicycle connectivity and bike facilities in a way that it could. And it was Liz, uh, Liz Pitton-Zyberg, who said to me, well, you know, write a letter. Why don't you write a letter to the Miami Herald and explain your position and, and try to build some more buzz around that, that specific issue. And I thought it was really great advice, and I had never really done that before. You know, fortunately, the letter got published, and then within 
weeks, I was, you know, in the span of a few weeks, I was sitting in the mayor's office, um, <laughs> surrounded by his, his advisors and a couple other bike advocates who I had gotten to know a little bit. And he said, okay, guys, what do we do? And how do we do it? And my jaw kind of dropped. Yeah. I had come from Boston, you know, before being in, in Michigan and Boston, you, there was no way at that point in time that anyone just rode an op-ed and all of a sudden the mayor gave you the keys to the kingdom and said, how do we do it? Right. So that was, again, right time, right place. You know, he very quickly supported those initiatives. We created a task force and got an action plan drafted within a matter of months. And then not only that, but he started to actually implement the items that were in the action plan, one of which was to move forward and do a bicycle master plan. So, you know, this was about a year later, and the city came to me and said, you know, we would love for you to work on this project. Are you willing and interested? And I kind of was like very, very shocked and also very excited and said, yeah, this would be wonderful. I mean, I had this incredible opportunity of working with DPZ and honestly could stay there for a long time and be very, very happy and challenged with the work. But, you know, I also came from the Northeast. All of my friends and family were in the Northeast. And to be honest, and really love Miami as a city in terms of living there long term. And so I made a hard decision and decided to use that as an opportunity to do that project for one, but two, use it as an opportunity to transition from Miami back to what became Brooklyn. So you know, I stayed in Miami for about six months. I did that project very, very quickly and devoted all my time to it. And then as soon as that project was done, I moved north and didn't really know yet if this entity called Street Plans is going to be something that would last longer than the one or two projects. Thankfully, over time, it definitely survived. And you know, after I moved to the Northeast, I realized that my one client was about 1,500 miles away. And <laughs> yeah, that, as, a, as a business, <laughs> that's uh, right. <laughs> so Tony uh, Garcia, who's my business partner at that time, was uh, looking for a few opportunities. And I said, why don't you just join forces with me and we'll try and keep some of the good stuff going, both from an advocacy perspective, but from a planning and consulting perspective as well moving forward in Miami and he's been amazing and, you know, been active in projects and in Miami ever since, you know, largely under his leadership. So it's been a lot of fun. Now you said that DPZ is an organization based around a mission. They have things that they want to do that are bigger than just themselves. And the thing that I like about street plans collaborative, and quite frankly, that I enjoy, you know, working with you is that you have that same kind of mentality and that same kind of approach. What are you trying to accomplish with the street plans collaborative? And what is it that drives you to pull in there every day and do what you do? <laughs> for better or for worse, financially, you know, this is this is what I learned at DPZ was that ideas are really, really important and ideas matter and executing on those matters as well. And so it really is not something that I've taken away, just person from the firm, but you know, a lot of people who've worked there have as well. And it's it's kind of this ethos and how you approach professional practice. Right. Is that you're not just a consultant and a hired gun to do, you know, X job and then you're done, but you do it with a purpose and with a mission, ideally to improve the environment, improve cities, improve livability and, you know, all sorts of good things. So I learned that and was attracted to that. I think I just had the personality type from a, you know, from college on. And that's what I was seeking professionally to have a lot of meaning and mission behind the work I was doing professionally. And so that really became a big part of street plans. The whole point was that, yeah, we're going to work on projects, but we're also going to pursue ideas that we think are, are important and they can make a contribution to the larger field and push the conversation forward. And so a lot of the, the work that we've done 
we've done without a client and put together publications and, and research and, and open that up to a much wider audience with the use of the internet. And it's actually really started to pay off in a lot of different ways. But again, the whole point is to get the ideas out there and become a platform for both research and advocacy to push the ball forward on planning, urban design, architecture, how we live in cities, a whole wide variety of issues. So we've done now, you know, multiple volumes of tactical urbanism. Uh, we've done the Open Streets Project. And something we'll be talking about later on today with my colleague, Julie Flynn, is we've done a project on markets in South America right. as well. And so we just see the connections between a lot of different interesting projects that, quite frankly, other people have started. And we see ourselves in the role in some ways as aggregators, that we see good ideas. We try to pull them together into a common theme and then project them out to give resources and tools and ideas to other people to act upon. You introduced me to the lean urbanism, and there have been a number of other books that you've suggested to me. I think you suggested Little Bets to me, but you also suggested, God, what was that book that Nico... Oh, The End of Big. The End of Big. Just like fascinating things that you've thrown my way, like you say, as the aggregator. That's the way that I look at you, too, is kind of like, oh, if I got a question, I'm going to bounce it off Mike, because he's going to know someone or know someone. Talk about how one of those ideas, the tactical urbanism, emerged from you know, your life and your experience. What, what were you trying to address with that, and how did that kind of evolve in your thinking? Yeah, you know, in fact, it goes back to Miami. So, again, working on the Miami 21 project was very influential in a lot of ways. And, you know, I was a newbie at that point into the public process, to public meetings, et cetera. But one thing, one takeaway that I had from meetings with as many people as, you know, 400 to as few as four, <laughs> was that it was really difficult for the public, the general public. I'm not talking about people working at the city or other planners and consultants or advocates even in neighborhoods, but just general people to understand and grasp what Miami 21 was trying to do. And, you know, the prettiest Photoshop rendering, the most effective diagram, even maps on a table can be alienating and hard for people to understand and to read. And those are the main tools of visual communication for planners. And I grew frustrated with that very early on because I was seeing it not having the impact that it should. Fast forward a year and you know, being involved with the bike advocacy, we did something called Open Streets in Miami called Bike Miami Days. And so Flagler Street and a couple other streets were shut down temporarily in downtown Miami. And thousands of people came out to bike, walk, skate, dance, hang out. And to me, that was a rendering in real time. You saw more smiling faces. You saw people who understood what the city could become instantly. You know, they were a part of it. And that experience was much more powerful than any charrette I've ever been a part of. And it touched much more people than any charrette or workshop or design process I've ever been a part of. And that was the moment that it all kind of clicked for me in that we've got to give people a real sense of what the, the change is on the ground physically. Maps, plans, diagrams, meetings... We need to keep using those tools. They're important, but they're also limited. And the open streets, again, drove my interest in a wide variety of other things where temporary projects are being used to affect long-term change. And I saw this coming from cities from the top down. I saw it coming from neighborhoods from the bottom up. You know, this is in 2009, 2010. And things like Build a Better Block were starting to come out of, you know, Dallas and spread fairly quickly. In New York City, we had the pavement plazas program and all the bike lanes and street transformations that were happening. 
you know, almost overnight and very, very, very inexpensively. And then helping to create not only demand, but to prove out concepts that can be difficult to translate through paper and screens. And I started to see the connections between a lot of these otherwise geographically disparate initiatives. And when we had that meeting in New Orleans, when we met each other, if you recall, we were tasked with coming to that meeting with something that we were working on, something that we were thinking about, and to share it with the group. And so for me, it was this notion of of the short-term action creating long-term change. And whether that's long-term change in policy or the long-term change in the physical nature of cities or both, uh, I was seeing impact. And I was seeing impact with using a very different kind of process than what was normal in most cities. That was really, really exciting. And so in sharing that, you know, a few of the next generators at that meeting said, hey, man, go write that up. Right. And, I remember. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so he did, and they put 25 pages together, you know, and put it online, and, you know, never underestimate the power of being able to reach people online, because one, it was free, two, it was accessible with just a single link, and I, you know, I posted it online, came back on vacation, and what had been intended for an audience of 20 was now an audience of thousands right. and, and growing in terms of downloads and people sharing it and often tactical urbanism became a buzzword and that was never ultimately the intent, but we're glad it worked out that way. And it's, uh, we've since, you know, gone a lot further with those ideas and been able to be inspired by not only other people doing projects, but other people from many other fields working on similar kinds of initiatives in their own work and how that relates to what we all do with trying to transform cities. I want to have you respond to some of the critiques of tactical urbanism because I found them fascinating and a lot of the dichotomy between old school thinking and what I would call new school thinking, the end of big kind of thinking. But right. before we get into that, why don't you just give us off the top of your head a couple success stories, you know, one or two success stories that you've seen in pursuit of the tactical urbanism approach. You know, a, a good example is is one that we were involved with in Hamilton, Ontario. Hamilton, for those who don't know, is an uh, industrial city or post-industrial city, an old steel town of about 500,000 people, and it's um, about 45 minutes south of Toronto. You know, the community there has had some of the best planners come through town, do plans, do new policies to champion complete streets. Uh, the city has adopted those plans, adopted those policies, but moved very little of it actually to implementation. The community was growing increasingly frustrated with the lack of change and the lack of progress, uh, and quite frankly, it's the lack of safety on their streets. So getting a hold of this idea of tactical urbanism, one of a member of the Hamilton Burlington Society of Architects, which is a, a mouthful, it's a professional organization there, called me up and you know, his name is Graham McNally, my age, and he said, hey man, some of us are really, really frustrated with the lack of change. We see that you understand these issues. We see your tool of tactical urbanism. Would you be willing to come to Hamilton and do a workshop with some of us on how we might be able to apply this idea to advocate for change? And so long story short is we, we developed five different sites uh, around the city, prototypical sites. And we broke people into teams, and after I explained the tool of tactical urbanism and how it's been applied and some other successful examples, we worked through different ideas connecting the short-term to the long-term change desired in those sites. And at the same time, the Society of Architects, with its members, had raised about $4,000 to take whatever came out of the workshop to go create some sort of intervention 
consistent with the with the projects themselves in each of the five sites. The task was to do these interventions within two weeks because I was also hired to come back in that two-week period to give a much larger lecture to the public at an event called Doors Open Hamilton. Yeah. And that's a you know architectural site tour of some of the great buildings there historically, and people get to tour through them and whatnot. So I kicked off that event with, a, with again, with a public lecture on, on tactical urbanism. And the point was to show how it had been applied elsewhere and kind of the tenets of the movement, but also what people in the room had carried forward in just the past two weeks. And ideally, we would get some of the ideas to stick. And the I won't go through all five sites, um, but the success was more than we ever expected. And one site was a intersection on a kind of a neighborhood commercial main street called Lock Street and the intersection with Herkimer. And Herkimer was a formerly a two-way slow-speed residential street and then at some point converted into a one-way two-lane street, which caused people to speed through this neighborhood and in particularly take a turn off of Lock onto Herkimer by an elementary school very, very quickly. And so there's a lot of fear in the neighborhood about a, a child or even just an adult being hit at this intersection. And the city, despite uh, requests to make changes, had done very little. Sure. In the middle of the night, client Graham went out with, you know, had some of them put some of the money that was put up for the projects, put some of that money into some, some traffic cones and painted the traffic cones yellow at the top and put some flowers on, on top of them, daffodils, because this is the spring. Right. And he went out and he actually used the cones to create two curb extensions at the intersection. And the whole point was to lessen the crossing distance and also to raise the visibility of pedestrians at the intersection itself. And long story short, the city did not look upon this activity or the activity at the four other sites favorably at all. You got a lot of media coverage on this one, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. It kind of blew up into a, a more of a national story, actually. Yeah, and yeah. The city pushed back. And Sorry about that. Back <laughs> we might have had a little bit to do in that. This was an obviously a very needed improvement. But quite frankly, it's it's tiny. It's a tiny little thing. It's right. very inexpensive for, for cities to deliver this change. But right. you know, it's so difficult to get something like this done. But the intervention itself caused kind of an uproar and brought a lot of actually positive attention to the intersection mm-hmm. and to the point where the city couldn't ignore it. So within a month, what was cones became permanent as a pilot project. The city upgraded the visibility of the intersection. They painted out the extension of the curb as was delineated by the cones. They have since gone forward and put permanent infrastructure in, in place. And so this is all in less than a year, you know, from being considered illegal and dangerous and guerrilla to being sanctioned and moving forward within a month's time, and then from June of 2013 um, to now, the city has done 67 different intersections in this manner, Wow! Um, making safety upgrades of this type. So it's really created a ripple effect, and the city's gotten a lot of positive feedback as opposed to hearing a lot of negative things. Why don't you do this? You're too slow. Come fix this. Come fix this. And hey, thank you, thank you, thank you for helping make our, our neighborhoods safer for walking. That's just been had a really, really big impact. Let me give you a couple of the critiques of tactical urbanism, because I want you to respond to them, because I think you do a better job responding to these than, than anyone I've heard. The first one, and you know where this one comes from. I don't need to mention our, our mutual friend, but <laughs> the notion that tactical urbanism is just silly. It's just dumb. It, it's a waste of time. Right. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the 
I understand how you can look at some of these projects and, you know, they're not higher in design for the most part. They're using very temporary materials. A lot of times they're, they're homemade projects. They're very small scale. So it, it's hard for people to actually wrap their mind around the impact that they're making. But, you know, in all of our research, we find, you know, just dozens and dozens and dozens of projects where, you know, very little money is spent, a big impact is made. And that impact is not just in the project and the physicality of the change, but in the process and the way that cities are actually delivering the change. That distinction is really, really important. It allows for a cultural change to happen either to municipality or with just citizens or ideally with both. So it unlocks a lot of potential in that way. And by being, again, quite low cost from the beginning, it's also low risk. So that it's silly is just is really a, not a very serious critique or that it's not a serious movement because more and more the whole point is to use it very intentionally to create long-term change. It's a very serious approach. It's just a different approach than what most people are used to in terms of advocating for change in our neighborhoods and in our cities. How about the critique that you are essentially breaking the law? I don't want to say like advocating people to uh, do something that's going to get them thrown in jail, but you're you're not following the established process. You are right. at times maybe doing things that some would consider illegal. Right. No, absolutely. And so you know, in our workshops and our work, if you know, if we recommend that people do action themselves, we also make sure they recognize the risks in doing so. But in general. 99.9% of all the projects I've seen that can be categorized as tactical urbanism that are also unsanctioned have a really strong civic intent. You know, they are for public use. They are for public good. They're operating on principles and ideas that, quite frankly, have been proven to make places better and safer. You know, so it was technically illegal to put orange cones in the streets of Hamilton. Yes, you know, that was illegal, but it made the neighborhood safer and it exposed an opportunity for the city to be more responsive to the needs of its citizenry, whether it's legal or not. And I think we all know that laws oftentimes change, and oftentimes laws and processes on the books in cities across this country are left over from a very different era. You know, zoning codes and um, the way we do engineering and planning, a lot of times those systems were created and put in place in the 1940s or 50s. And yes, it's been tweaked, and yes, there's been new layers, new processes built on top of those systems. You know, there's been not been a lot of change to address the underlying challenges or how obsolete some of those systems actually are for creating change. And that citizens and advocates, people in communities, think about things differently now. They think about different processes. They want a new way to interact with government. You know, I think in a lot of ways, it's not more government or less government, it's just better government. This becomes a tool to help shine a light on those opportunities. And so, you know, time and time again, we see this immediate moment of tension between advocates and a city. You know, this is not right. This is not the sanction process. We are upset at the city. This is dangerous to that perspective, moving very quickly to, okay, we see the intent. We actually see the benefits of this. How can we help initiate or scale this up or adopt this as a policy? You know, for better or for worse, it's kind of the squeaky wheel syndrome taken into a physical realm. You know, it's not just showing up to a public meeting and, and yelling the loudest, but it's about actually doing something proactive in your neighborhood and having people pay attention to that and showing people the opportunity for change. And it's quite powerful. So we see that things can be illegal. Uh, we see that they're unsanctioned, but time and time again, they don't stay that way for long. 
How about the notion that none of the people out here doing this stuff are professionals? They're not engineers. They don't have degrees. They're not carrying insurance. A lot of them are not certified planners. These people are not qualified to go out and, and do these types of interventions. I don't think that's untrue. I mean, I think you know the people who generally are involved either are working with, collaborating with, or themselves have been involved in the civic process for a while. So that they understand risk, they understand the rewards of doing these projects, they understand the kinds of projects that will have an impact. You could literally read three or four blogs over the course of three or four months and be as up to speed on any issue in terms of pedestrian safety, transportation design, et cetera, as any other professional to a degree. And you know, you'd at least know the tools that are available and their, their possible impact in the direction the field is going in. So there's so much there's so much democratization of information related to these issues that the expert, so to speak, is no longer the only expert in the room. You know, we all have access to this kind of information. Anyone can download, you know, or go online and read the NACTO street design guide and get an understanding of the tools that are available there. You know, you don't have to pay uh, $150 for a, you know, AASHTO guide and have a PE license to understand street design. You know, that's one example of how this information is now readily available to people who, quite frankly, are just interested in making positive change. And I think that's really, really exciting. And the, the cities that are embracing that, that are embracing this activity, seeing people who are not quote-unquote professionals making a positive impact in the cities that are taking that activity and figuring out a way to scale it up, provide resources to it, change their policies. Those cities, in my mind, are the ones that are going to set themselves up well for the future because this seems to be the kind of process that people want to engage in more and more, less and less in the, in the system that's been used for the past 50 or 60 years. It's interesting because I know you've, you occasionally or maybe frequently, I don't know, read our blog and one of the things that you kind of weighed in on last year was when I started writing about credentialing. And you had some pretty strong opinions on professionals and credentialing systems and kind of some of the barriers that that creates to maybe thought and innovation and, you know, other people stepping up and getting involved. Would you want to share any of that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, to each his own, right? But, you know, in, in sure. my own way of looking at things, you know, a lot of the credentials have not advanced the big picture very far. You know, so you can be a professionally licensed engineer and you can pay your hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in parts of certain organizations and maintain your credits and do this, that, and the other. And that can be very important, you know, to have professional respect with your colleagues. I just don't think it's the only way about achieving that, that respect. And I also think that a lot of the work of our professions, if you look at the results, really aren't worthy of credentialing, in my opinion. <laughs> Amen. You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I've seen street design, engineering, and that kind of field, and that kind of work, only produce dangerous environments for people. You know, to reward that with credentials is not a good thing, in my opinion. And to also create that into a operation where you're requiring those people to spend hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a year to maintain and perpetuate that system is a really bad and dangerous thing. And so I think people get locked into it and continue to operate within this world, which does not necessarily see innovation or the opportunities for change as a good thing. It's much more status quo driven. And of course, I'm speaking very, very broadly right now about only one subset of our field, but it's just one observation on, I see you know more value in people actually gaining direct experience and thinking differently about problems and working towards those challenges 
than simply becoming a professionally licensed you know person in the field and maintain the status quo. Well, you know, and when we go back to that book, The End of Big, that we talked about earlier, it to me, it's all in that same kind of mindset. A lot of times credentialing limits your ability to think independently and in a sense protects or codifies the dogma of the profession. And, you know, you and I both working in cities know that a lot of what we deal with day in and day out and trying to do positive things for people is breaking down some of that dogma. So it's credentialing is really frustrating to me because it's become a, a huge obstacle actually to getting good things done. Yeah. And it's, again, it's very, very expensive. Um, right. Well, you got you that know, too. Yeah. Whole yeah. national organizations rely on people maintaining their credentials and, you know, that's not just our field. That's many, many fields. And I think some of that started to go by the wayside. I think it's going to go by the wayside even more as time goes on with people who just rather not spend a thousand dollars a year on continuing ed credits. Right. You know, I just, there may be other reasons to spend that money in terms of meeting up with colleagues and getting, getting more insight and expertise. But for the credentialing alone, people who are just there to get credits also waters down the conversation, the experience for those who are there for ideas and for yeah. best practices and et cetera. And of course, there's overlap between those two groups, but right. well, you, know, well, <laughs> you see subsets of both in conferences and around the profession. Yeah. Once you go to a CNU, you realize that sitting through a bunch of consultants giving presentations on the great project they did so you can get your continuing ed credits it is not a very good use of your time. Um, no, it's very frustrating. Right. Being in a in a place where you have a lot of people talking about a lot of ideas. I mean, I, I would rather take the 500 bucks I send to APA every year and just buy a bunch of books and read them. I mean, to me, that's <laughs> it's a better, oh, yeah. a better intellectual use of my doing. money. Yeah. <laughs> I'm no longer a member of the APA. I mean, I support the organization's general mission, but yeah. you know, largely I didn't see any value coming back to me right. professionally or even intellectually. Yeah. So I stopped being a member there and I think that's too bad. I think that's unfortunate in a lot of ways, but that's just my own personal take and opinion on it. You know, my own credential, actually, in terms of credentialing with, with CNU, you you know, being CNU accredited, that's something that I need to renew by tomorrow or lose that license. And oh, really? Okay. Quite frankly, I, I, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to do it or not. Yeah, yeah. I think CNU is one of the best organizations out there right. in our field, but I don't know really if I'm going to pursue that or not. We'll see. Now, as a way to end this, I, I want to point out that you grew up in a very... I would say standard kind of place, right? I mean, you grew up in standard America, certain amount of horizontal auto-oriented development. You weren't born on a bike. Is that a fair way to describe where you grew up in Maine? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, you know, again, I grew up in a small town of 2,000 people and it was quite rural. So I did actually bike around a lot as a kid, but again, it was a fairly small town, but it's quite rural. So everyone had to drive for most things, particularly to access daily conveniences, so it was not in my mindset from day one that I would be uh, an urbanist. But I think because I grew up in Maine itself, it has a lot of old compact villages and towns. And seeing how those functioned, I think, was key to me understanding the link between small towns of 2,000 people and whole cities of 500,000 or a million people. So you know, when I would go visit Boston, I just saw it as a bigger version of Damascot and Maine. It just had the same, you know, bricks. A lot of it was three and four stories and it just went on for, you know, a lot longer in terms of streets and the actual urbanism. I don't know. I mean, Maine, Maine is a bit exceptional, to be honest. It's, it's changed a lot in the last 20, 30 years. There is more auto oriented development and more sprawl in, in southern Maine, anyways. But 
it was exceptional at the time, at least that most of the villages were largely intact and had not been hollowed out by sprawl in the common way that you see elsewhere across the country. You have given me an appreciation because I, I mean, I grew up and I still live in a small town and, you know, Manhattan scared the hell out of me <laughs> for many years. But, you know, I've come there and met with you and hung out with other people. And, you know, just being friends with you has given me an appreciation for parts of this country that I maybe hadn't seen in the way that you've presented it. What is life like in New York you know, from behind the handlebars, essentially, the, oh, the way you live it. It's wonderfully convenient. <laughs> it's, you know, it saves me a ton of money. And a lot of people think about New York, and the first thing you think about is housing costs. I would encourage people to look at total affordability in terms of transportation costs. And when you look at that, you realize that, you know, paying, you know, hundreds of dollars more a, a month or a year and thousands of dollars more a year in rent is offset by the fact that you don't have to own and operate a, a vehicle. Sure. And so for me, I've got a vast number of amenities within five minutes or less of my house walking distance. I'm able to live within a couple miles of where my office is. And so I can bike to work very easily in a protected bike lane, which is very safe, very comfortable. It's kind of my ideal setup and it makes life very, very convenient. I waste very little time trying to commute between places, um, which just gives me uh, more time to spend time with my friends, uh, with my girlfriend, with, you know, just in my neighborhood, and of course, working and thinking about these issues. So it's kind of an ideal setup for me personally, and it's why I chose New York purposely, you know, back in 2009. You and I got together, well, it was about a year and a half ago, and talked about this idea of a boot camp. It kind of, you know, let the process simmer and evolve. Later on this month in April, we're going to be putting out the very first boot camp, one of what I hope, and I, I know you hope, will be many across the country. Give us just your 30-second reaction or preview or anticipation of this event that we're going to be doing here in Memphis in April. Yeah, well, the way I look at the boot camp is that, one, Memphis is a, it's a phenomenal place to be applying these ideas and to be working because there is such an undercurrent of innovation and transformation there that few people know about on, on the national level. You know, what we've seen come out of neighborhoods and the way that the city is willingly using new tools that we advocate for, whether that's IOB and tactical urbanism and thinking about the economics of how and where they invest, becoming a stronger town, stronger city is, is, is fantastic. You know, for us, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to bring together our different approaches that are very much similar and aligned and overlap but we haven't had the venue opportunity to do so. And so that we have a, a client in the mayor's innovation delivery team in the city of Memphis who's interested in in doing this and bringing these different approaches together so that a wider audience of, of leaders and advocates in that city can uh, be exposed to them and think about how that can apply to creating the kind of change that a lot of people are now starting to advocate for in Memphis will be a really positive experience. And, and I think for us, it's a really good opportunity to test this idea out. You know, we've seen the last few years, Memphis is not afraid to try things that are new, small, you know, small things that can lead to bigger and longer term change. And I think that's what we're doing all together with the boot camp is let's see how this stuff fits together. Let's see how it can create an impact. Let's see who we can inspire, but also who we internally as the boot camp team can learn from in our own work to help change the conversation around cities nationally. Perfect. You know, to me, the idea of having you and Joe Minicozzi be able to present along with me and, and our stuff 
that's some of the premier kind of edgy thinking right now going on in, in cities around the country. And I'm, I'm thrilled about it. I, I'm just kind of giddy when I look at the agenda and see some of the things that we're going to be able to share with people. The dates on that are April 22nd through 24th in Memphis, Tennessee. And we're going to have a, a website up on that soon with more information. I'll post that link here shortly. I want to close out by probing you a little bit on some books that you have worked on and that you've got in the process because I, I think people want more. I love the two tactical urbanism manuals, but when I got out done with them, there was more that I wanted. And right. you're, you're in the process of putting that together, right? Yeah, yeah. We're writing, I say we, I mean, my partner Tony Garcia and I are writing a full length book about tactical urbanism, which will you know, take the ideas that are presented in volumes one through three and expand upon those. And we're, you know, we've looked at history and we look at how these sorts of processes that we champion largely have been used throughout the development of cities, you know, which is actually was quite fascinating. We knew that intuitively, but going back and finding examples was a lot of fun. We explore a bit further why this movement and this idea has taken hold, the way that it has and when it has. I think there's been this convergence of, you know, several issues that are, you know, both economic and cultural and technology driven that are quite exciting and, you know, not going to be on, you know, that's surprising to, I think, a lot of people who are our readers, but I think they'll be, they'll appreciate the way that we bring those issues together to explain tactical urbanism. And we're going to offer not, you know, 24, 36, or 48 case studies in one-page formats like we've done in the past. We're going to offer, you know, six or seven in-depth looks at some of our favorite projects. And not just what they are, but why they were successful, what made them successful, um, the people behind them, et cetera. And then finally, you know, we're going to distill a lot of the knowledge that we've gained in the last four years into one chapter that is really the how-to. And so we want to be able to discuss, you know, whether you are a, you know, citizen advocate just getting started or you are a municipal bureaucrat trying to enact change and affect change at the systems level, but also within your own departments and in your own work, how you can use the tool as well. And so that's all coming out in spring of 2015. Unfortunately, we, we were aiming for 2014. But our own work has gotten in the way of being able to, to finish the book as quickly as we wanted to. That's all coming forward in spring of 2015, and we're very excited for that to be released. But while that's going on, we're also working on you know, lots of other projects and other things that will be coming forth that we also will put up online that will be available and free. And again, the latest project is on markets in South America and the lessons that can be drawn from those for North America. That's our, our latest publication. And who did you write that with? I can't remember her name. That is written with Julie Flynn, and she'll she'll tell you more about that. Julie and I are going to chat. Yeah, Julie and I are going to chat. I think our next podcast is actually going to be with Julie Flynn, chatting about that book and that project. So I'm I'm excited to hear from her. Yeah, you know Julie's uh, you know, fantastic. She's actually a former roommate of mine, and now is my colleague here at Street Plan. She's a project manager with us, and she had the great fortune of spending five months in, in South America. And this was a project that emerged out of that experience, and so she'll tell you all about that. Mike Lyden, we can get more of your work at streetplans.org. I'm on your website right now, and you've got a link there to the latest that does have like all the stuff that's going on, and it's an impressive list of things you're working on. Thanks so much for being part of the Strong Towns podcast, and I look forward to seeing you in Memphis. Thanks, Chuck. Look forward to seeing you too. Take you, care. You take care. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye.
they know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah. And the trike moves up.